Hello, and welcome to Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, researcher, storyteller, and writer about the human history of Algonquin Park. Today, our stories are going to focus on the little town of Mowat on the north shore of Canoe Lake. It's 1918, the year the great flu pandemic first came to Ontario. During our time together, I'm going to focus on five key areas. First, we'll talk about the challenges of getting there. Then share a bit about what the surrounding landscape was like after the loggers had come through in the mid-late 1800s. Then we'll explore some of the economics of the community and who the key protagonists were who lived, worked, and loved there at the time. And then finally, we'll talk about the pandemic and the healthcare ecosystem of those times. In 1918, J.R. Booth's Ottawa and Arne Pryor Railway had been in existence for just over a decade. The original survey party, who had headed out in the fall of 1891, returned to Ottawa in March of 1892, having traveled over 500 miles to survey what ended up being 120 miles of rail from Ottawa to Depot Harbor on Georgian Bay. Work began at the town of Carp in July of 1892 and reached Eganville by the end of the year. In May of 1893, Algonquin National Park was proclaimed, and by the fall of 1894, the construction railhead had reached just outside of Barry's Bay. Soon after, much to the chagrin of the people of Barry's Bay, the little town of Madawaska nearby was declared the Midway Divisional Point. The town eventually housed a roundhouse, coal trestle, station and hotel to support the railway workers who housed there. The rail line that ran through the southern end of the park was completed through 1895-96 and freight service began in December of 1896. The passenger service began soon after in early 1897 after a December celebratory inspection tour hosted by Booth and attended by the then Prime Minister Wilfrid Laurier. At the time, re return fare from Ottawa to Perry Sound was $14.85, with a special Christmas excursion fare that year of $5.50 to celebrate the Christmas season. However, though the rail was open to passengers, getting to Algonquin was not all that easy. With an average speed of 35 miles an hour and stops every few miles, it took over 11 hours from Buffalo, 8 hours from Toronto, and 6 hours from Ottawa to get there. A marvelous example of the challenges of a typical trip comes from Dr. and Mrs. Peary, who had bought the Gilmore Brothers' cottages on Gilmore Island, just south of the town of Moet. Arriving from Costa Rica, where Dr. Peary practiced medicine, the two would spend a day shopping in Toronto at Eaton's, Simpson's, or Northway's three well-known department stores at the time. Their purchases were then packed and shipped by train to Canoe Lake Station. They then proceeded down Young Street to Union Station in downtown Toronto, where they had to wait until midnight to board the northbound sleeper train. At 6 a.m. the next morning, they would reach Scotia Junction, a town first settled in 1875 as a small postal and farming outlet located just south of today's Elmsdale on Highway 11 north of Huntsville. In its heyday, Scotia Junction had nearly 400 residents with three hotels, and according to Smoke Lake resident George Garland, who came through with his parents in 1931, the worst food in Canada. The Peary's then had to wait for the eastbound Perry Sound mixed train, which would drop them off at Canoe Lake Station at around 10 a.m. the next morning. Then they, plus all their luggage and supplies, would be paddled down the lake to the island on a makeshift platform lashed between two canoes. No meal service was provided on the train, but the seating accommodations were comfortable, and some trains had a special smoking car. 
The express train came in on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, stayed overnight at Cache Lake, and went out on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. In addition, there was a freight train Monday and Friday, so there was actually a train coming in five days a week. One of the exciting parts of the run was the high trestle over Tonawanda Creek between Ravensworth and McCraney, where the train had to proceed very slowly at between 5 and 10 miles an hour. At Canoe Lake, most passenger trains were met by a local park ranger. In 1918, that would have been Mark Robinson. Robinson joined the park staff in 1907, and except for a stint to Europe during the early years of World War I as part of a reserve force, he lived and worked in the park for nearly 40 years, including a couple of years as acting park superintendent from 1922 to 1924. Apparently, at one time, department regulations prohibited or at least disapproved of families of park rangers living with them. He'd faithfully mail his wife his paycheck each month and wrote letters weekly. He would travel to visit his family in Barrie several times a year. It was only in later years that the family would come to visit him for a few weeks during the summer. What a lonely life it must have been for both of them. A park ranger's job was to keep an eye out for poachers and any other type of disreputables. They also had to keep an eye out for booze, as Ontario had just recently passed in 1916 the Ontario Temperance Act that prohibited the sale of alcohol in the province. Ontarians could still get alcohol, though, by getting a prescription from their doctor. And according to Craig Herson in his book Booze, A Distilled History, in 1920 alone, Ontario doctors wrote more than 650,000 prescriptions for alcohol. My most favorite alcohol story happened at Rock Lake in 1925 with Mrs. Merritt, who had a lease with her husband, Dr. William Merritt. Mrs. Merritt was under a doctor's care for a stomach ailment. Her doctor had prescribed for her a quantity of ale that needed to be taken daily. Her brother, Merton Seymour, had arranged with the brewer's retail in Huntsville to ship to her via train one case of ale every week to 10 days. Unfortunately, his shipping instructions were not followed, and all five cases that Mrs. Merritt was expected to need during her stay at Rock Lake were shipped at once. These arrived at the Algonquin Park headquarters at Cache Lake and were immediately seized by the park authorities. Mrs. Merritt was advised that she needed to come to Cache Lake along with her residence permit and the doctor's prescription, sign for the cases herself and provide an explanation. This was impossible for Mrs. Merritt, as paddling the long distance along the Madawaska River to Cache Lake wasn't feasible. After a flurry of correspondence and telegrams between Seymour, Merritt, and the park superintendent, arrangements were made such that each time the gas car went down to Rock Lake, the car driver was permitted to carry one case so that Mrs. Merritt could receive her ale without having to come up and get it and allow the park regulations to be complied with. As was noted in ministry correspondence, the use of our gas car for carrying express to Rock Lake in this instance was only given as a courtesy by the CNR in order to assist Mrs. Merritt and not as a regular procedure. When one finally did arrive at Canoe Lake Station, the first thing that visitors would have noticed was that the Canoe Lake Station was nowhere near the lake. The only water visible was Potter Creek, a small creek about 15 feet wide that would have been visible at the bottom of a steep wooden chute. Down this chute, the visitor's baggage would have been sent to a rowboat, which would have then transported it down the creek to Mowat Lodge, the only accommodation in the vicinity. Waiting to transport your person most likely would have been Shannon Fraser, proprietor of Mowat Lodge. Fraser, known as Shan, was tall with bright red curly hair and freckles. He was well-spoken, good-natured, a great talker and showman, full of great ideas. 
He loved to be the center of attention, although to some he was lazy, and this was an excuse to make his wife Annie and his old mother do all the work. With him would either have been a horse-drawn cart or a later a modified hearse, a picture of which you can see here. Note that the driver in this picture of Shan's horse-drawn cart is none other than artist Tom Thompson, who from time to time would do odd jobs for Fraser to earn his keep. Mowat Lodge itself was originally the lumberman boarding house for the Gilmore Lumber Company. Set on rising ground some distance from the water, it faced the old mill yard. Nearby would have been some abandoned buildings from former days, including a horse barn, storehouse, pump house, and by the lake shore, the summer homes of the Trainer and Bletcher families. Both were now locally famous due to their involvement as key characters in the saga of Tom Thompson's death the previous year in 1917. Shannon's wife Annie kept her own cows, which supplied the hotel with milk. Mowat Lodge also catered to campers and advertised their ability to provide meals, including boxed picnic lunches, supplies, and mail for those who wished to camp at one of the many campsites on Canoe Lake. Mowat Lodge was considered the third place in quality after the Highland Inn and the Algonquin Hotel, but was at least in its early days a financial success. This was no doubt due to its reasonable rates, very rustic and casual atmosphere, and excellent cooking provided by Annie Fraser. The only complaints were concerns about its inadequate heating and makeshift furnishings. Fraser never liked to be seen in anything other than a blue suit, shirt, tie, and fedora, giving the aura of a successful businessman. In this, he was at times a bit challenged. He had a bad habit of going off and doing what he wanted, even though Annie and others would disagree. One year, he advertised a new but non-existent open fireplace in the lobby that Annie was adamant they couldn't afford to build but had to so as to not disappoint arriving guests. Another year he was given the unofficial title as the mayor of Mowat. After 1914, Mowat Lodge became somewhat of an artist's haunt due to the influence of Tom Thompson and many of his fellow artists who would follow him to the park and paint. As was suggested and most likely a bit of an exaggeration by Audrey Sanders in her 1956 History of Algonquin Park, The Algonquin Story, the paintings had to dry before being packed so the lodge would overflow with all the latest sketches, sharing in friendly criticisms and unstinting praise of most recent experiments. I'm afraid, between you and me, I have a hard time imagining a bunch of fishing guides, railway workers, and hotel guests engaged in art appreciation discussions. At the time, painting was considered by the locals to be unmanly and certainly not a valid profession. ensconced at Mowat Lodge, I'm sure most visitors would have been shocked at their surroundings. Out in front of the hotel was the former Lumber Company chipyard, a 30-acre treeless, desolate area covered with pine slabs and sawdust. According to Audelyn Addison in her book Tom Thompson, The Algonquin Years, wildlife was plentiful in the surrounding area. The deer wandered across the chipyard and beaver swam in the bay nearby. However, as artist A.Y. Jackson put it in 1914, the area around Canoe Lake was a ragged piece of nature, hacked up many years ago by a lumber company that went broke. It was fire-swept, dammed by both man and beaver, and overrun with wolves. This was because in 1896, at the beginning of the lumber operations, dams had been built at Smoke and South Tea Lakes that raised the water level on Canoe Lake and environs by over three feet. 
Eventually, all of the trees along the shoreline died. That, along with indiscriminate logging of any sizable trees in the area, made Canoe Lake a pretty ugly environment generally. Nearby would have been the remains of the Gilmore Mill, though by 1918 most of the equipment and remaining buildings would have been dismantled and sold. The railroad spur line and related switching yard tracks close to 11 miles of steel had been purchased by Colonel Garchor, head of General Steelwares in the 1900s. At nearby Rock Lake, as you can see here, forest fires due to sparks from the locomotive engines ravaged acres upon acres of forest, and the remains of the gravel pit at Whitefish Lake illustrated another barren landscape common in those days. In the backcountry, protected beaver were making a comeback and building massive dams. This collage shows the environment that one of the first guided canoe trips in Algonquin experienced in the fall of 1903. The only thing similar in size that can be seen today is along the Centennial Ridges Trail. Tom Thompson's paintings of Canoe Lake provide a somewhat different view, as you can see here. Top left is looking across the lake from Mowat, towards what is now the site of the Tom Thompson Memorial Cairn and Totem Pole. In the foreground you can see dead trees near the canoe and the same across the lake. Top right is a view of a burnt out forest. The bottom right is a perspective of the town of Mowat painted from atop the Tom Thompson Memorial site, one of his favorite camping spots. And bottom left is another view looking south from the Cairn site of a ravaged shoreline, more stark because it looks like it was painted in the spring, as what looks like snow was still apparent in the distant hillside. Today much has changed. The dead stumps along the shoreline are all gone, though in the South Bay they could still be seen in 1953. By 2005, nothing remained of the chipyard except swamp and even Tom Thompson's totem pole is no longer visible from the lake. What hasn't changed, though, are the stumps of fallen pine trees, as you can see here. On the left is a photograph by Ernest Mercado of a fallen giant pine root system found by one of the first Algonquin canoe tripping parties in the Big Trout area in 1903. On the right is a photo taken by me of a virtually identical giant pine root system found in the same area just coming out of Otter Slides Creek in 2014. Now let's talk about the economics of the area. The idea of encouraging tourists and leaseholders to Algonquin Park originated with George Bartlett who was the park superintendent from 1898 to 1922. With a utilitarian and conservationist perspective, Bartlett promoted the policy of harvesting timber for revenues and forest improvement. He was also determined to protect the watershed cover, wildlife and park aesthetics from exploitation. He also encouraged the development of Algonquin as a tourist destination, though limited it to certain lakes so that recreational activity, along with the economic benefits that resulted, could be properly balanced with the Algonquin wilderness. In 1905, the park was open to leaseholding, and in 1908, the Grand Trunk Railway opened the Highland Inn on Cache Lake. Also that year, Lawrence Merrill from Rochester, New York, built and opened the Algonquin Hotel at Joe Lake Station. Four years later, in 1912, the Grand Trunk Railway opened Menacing Lodge on Burnt Island Lake and Nominegan Lodge on Smoke Lake. Also at about that same time, Mowat Lodge was officially licensed. 
although as Canoe Lake Lodge it had been unofficially operating out of the old Gilmore Hospital since 1906-1907 time period. In 1909, the Grand Trunk Railway started an advertising campaign in the American Northeast, emphasizing the area's magnificence as a fish and game preserve, paradise for camper and angler, and exhilarating atmosphere. They even advised that a beautifully illustrated publication with full description and maps was available free from a wide variety of locations. The Highland Inn boasted of indoor washrooms, hot and cold running water, fine meals, as well as a complete canoe tripping guide and outfitting services. Accommodation cost $2.50 to $3 per day, $16 to $18 per week, inclusive of all meals. It was a far cry from roughing it in the bush. Guests were dressed impeccably by today's standards and gathered for formal dining in the main lodge. As many of the locals said, if you went to the Highland Inn, you were big shots. Nominegan, on the other hand, was advertised as a thoroughly universal vacation territory in both summer or winter, satisfying alike to novice and veteran, enabling one to be both in close touch with civilization or entirely apart from it. Winter sports included snowshoeing, tobogganing, skiing, and skating. The Algonquin Hotel was considered a bit more rustic than the Highland Inn. The outside was made of custom-cut wood slabs, so patrons who vacationed there wanted to rough it a little more. Guests would usually come for a month and spend time picnicking, hiking, swimming, or fishing on the lake. Over time, it became a favorite place to start fishing trips in the park. Often the women would gather on the veranda to talk, crochet, knit, play cards, or go for walks around the property, while the men went on fishing expeditions. There were always a few women who loved the place and would join their husbands on these day trips, but most of the women liked the hotel and its environment and were especially happy when their husbands went off for a few days and left them to themselves. The Algonquin Hotel had about 20 rooms, two big screened-in porches, and three bathrooms that were shared by all the guests. There were coal lamps for light and various wood stoves that would be lit when it got a little cool in early spring or late fall. Each bedroom was equipped with a nice washstand with pitcher, oil lamps for late night reading, iron or wooden beds, and nice wooden dressers. In the kitchen was a big wood-burning range that was unbearable to cook on in the summer, but a great generator of heat when it was cold. The hotel charged $18 to $22 a week for the most expensive rooms and all of the meals. All of the dishes were heavy china, and the dining room would fit 50 or 60 people sitting on pressed back chairs at eight wooden tables, covered with fresh linen tablecloths. During the years that the hotel was occupied during the winter, the dining room became a walk-in freezer for the supplies that were brought in every two weeks. One person's job for the whole season was the washing and ironing of all of the hotel linens using a propane washing machine and a great big ironing machine. In 1917, Merrill decided he'd had enough and sold the hotel to Ed and Molly Colson, who had up until that point been the general managers at the Highland Inn on Cache Lake. Molly Colson first came to Algonquin Park in May of 1900 to visit with her good friends Dr. and Mrs. William Bell at Cache Lake. Dr. Bell had just joined the ranger staff and was in the process of drafting the first Algonquin Park canoe route map. Ed Colson first came to the park from Guelph as a ranger in 1905. He was a quiet man and somewhat withdrawn, but he and Molly fell in love and got married in 1907. Molly, on the other hand, had a strong personality and had everyone under her thumb. Soon after, Annie Colson, Ed's sister, known to all as Aunt Annie, 
opened an outfitting store to cater to the angler community. According to Ralph Bice, in its heyday, the Joe Lake Outfitting Store was the best outfitting store in the park. It was a busy and popular meeting place for all sorts, and you would see a lot of different faces every day. Though somewhat severe looking, Annie was well loved, especially when the hotel ordered ice cream. She would always let the local children know in advance so that they could be the first to buy. People would call or write in their tripping orders before they came up. Annie would pack all their flour and rice and whatever they wanted in cotton bags. The eggs were packed into pails and along with tents and blankets. No one had sleeping bags in those days. Everything was packed into big pack sacks. Annie had been in charge of the outfitting store at Highland Inn and could set up a list of supplies as well as most guides. She had her hands full, though, looking after the customers as well as having little kids from all over the area running around and getting in the way. All the kids knew that Annie had a weakness for children, so most were in the store waiting for handouts that she would slip them. As a result of the hotel, train station, and outfitting store, in summer that end of Joe Lake was a busy place. There were guests, guides, children's camp staff, and people from around the lake who would be over at the hotel for one thing or another. There was always some reason for coming over to get supplies at the Joe Lake store, to talk to the Ed guides, or Ed Colson himself. According to Mary Colson Clare, who was Ed Colson's niece and for a time in the 1930s a teacher at the local Canoe Lake School, the Colsons usually made enough money through the summer with the outfitting store and the hotel that they could survive during the winter and get ready for another summer. This generally holds true today for all of the retail establishments in the park, though their combination of amenities are somewhat different depending on the location. Lumbering was and continues to be to this day one of the most important economic engines for the park and the surrounding communities. In the 1800s, rent from leased timber limits and fees for every tree cut, known as stumpage fees, were major sources of revenue for the Ontario government. Trained lumber scalers had this ability to walk through a forest and estimate the total volume of lumber that could be extracted from a certain acreage of land. At one time, there were as many as 10 logging companies with timber rights operating in the park, though usually during the seasons when there were few backcountry canoeists or anglers in the area. As early as 1900, though, complaints were raised as to the impact that logging was having on the natural beauty of the park. In addition to the destructive impact of dams on the shoreline, as previously mentioned, beavers were drowned in their lodges, added water ruined creeks and stream beds, Trout spawning grounds were impacted by spring river runs, and leftover slash and stumps transformed beautiful vistas into desolate landscapes. Though able to regulate waterways by 1916, it wasn't until the 1930s that logging within 100 feet of all shoreline was prohibited. Pointer boats were used to transport equipment and supplies across lakes and down rivers to various logging facilities. Designed by John Coburn in Ottawa for J.R. Booth, they became the mainstay for the driving of logs down rivers in the spring. Pictured here is the interior of what was called a cambu shanty where the lumber workers would live during the winter months. A single room made of pine logs that would be home to as many as 50 men. They would sleep on mattressless bunks with a gray blanket or two to keep them warm. In the center you can see in this picture was a raised mound of sand below an open hole in the roof upon which a fire burned 24 hours a day. Pots of pork and beans were buried in the hot sand to cook, whilst kettles of tea simmered on an iron fire crane suspended over the fire. Pointer boats were used to transport equipment and supplies across lakes and down rivers to various logging facilities. Designed by John Coburn in Ottawa for J.R. Booth, 
They became the mainstay for the driving of logs down rivers in the spring. Pictured here is the interior of what was called a Cambu shanty where the lumber workers would live during the winter months. A single room made of pine logs would be home to as many as 50 men. They would sleep on mattressless bunks with a gray blanket or two to keep them warm. In the center, as you can see in this picture, was a raised mound of sand below an open hole in the roof, upon which a fire burned 24 hours a day. Pots of pork and beans were buried in the hot sand to cook, whilst kettles of tea simmered on an iron fire crane suspended over the fire. Trains hauled large square logs to market, and until the invention of chainsaws, every tree was cut down by hand with axes and cross-cut saws. The picture on the top right shows J.R. Booth in his elder years inspecting a train full of car logs as it's about to leave the station. Another key employer was the railroad. Each station housed a station master and usually their family. The station master usually lived in rooms above the train station waiting room. Edwin Thomas and his family are pictured here outside the Canoe Lake Station. In Madawaska, the railway divisional point, the locomotive roundhouse is pictured here. Workers lived in provided bunkhouses and were moved daily to their required work locations. Railway officials got around using the railway private cars. The one pictured here is number 99, called Apiango, that was owned by the Canadian Atlantic Railway and often used by J.R. Booth's family, who owned a summer home on Rock Lake until the 1950s. Under the 1893 Algonquin Park Act, park rangers were given the power and authority to patrol the park to detect trespassers, check for weapons and alcohol, enforce park regulations, investigate suspicious goings-on such as improperly flying the Union Jack, Canada's official flag at the time, and if needed, arrest poachers. They were also the official game wardens responsible for issuing fishing licenses and enforcing fishing regulations, and from time to time were called on to be ex officio health officers. Most were stationed in different areas of the park and resided in either cabins built for that purpose or if on wilderness patrol stayed at a series of shelter huts that were located all across the park. Park rangers who were on patrol were responsible for clearing portages and waterway blockages, including the occasional beaver dam, so the canoe routes were easier to travel on. What is also hard to believe now is that they were also responsible for ridding the park of as many wolves as they were able. At the time, wolves were considered to be voracious hunters of all other protected animals in the park, especially the deer, and for decades were poisoned, trapped, shot, or snared. Most park rangers of those days would be flabbergasted by the very idea of park-sponsored wolf howls. Another source of employment in summer was that of fire ranging. This involved watching and putting out fires, often caused by camper, fisherman, and tourist carelessness, as well as lightning and the sparks from railway locomotives. Later in the 1920s, a network of 100-foot-high fire towers were established at high points of land across the park, manned in summer by a cadre of fire rangers who earned 15 cents an hour. The fire towers were mostly made of steel. The only exception was one pictured here on Smoke Lake that was mounted eight feet above the topmost branches of one of the last really tall pine trees in the area. Built in 1925 at 102 feet, it came complete with platform, railing, and a room that could hold three men. Built of spruce poles that had been hauled up to the pine top by rope and then cut there with axes, the frame was fastened into place with angle braces. Though not used for fire detection after the 1930s, it did stand for a full 50 years until, according to a local resident, the ancient tree crashed to earth in a summer storm in 1975. 
with 360 degree views of the surrounding area, each fire tower also had a topographical map and a sighting instrument that allowed them to find the precise compass bearings of the fire. With this estimate, they would use a bush telephone to call into headquarters, the location of the fire, and an assessment of its size and the color of the smoke. In summer of 1916, Tom Thompson hired on as a fire ranger and was stationed at Acre, where he shared a cabin with Edward Goodin, another ranger. It is in this area where it is believed that he painted the Jack Pine and maybe also the West Wind, two of his most known and celebrated works. Other than lumbering, the railway, or working on the park staff, the only other available employment was guiding tourists on fishing or camping trips. At the time, Algonquin Park was a favorite spot for anglers, but few went who couldn't paddle and manage a canoe. Most tourists were Americans, as according to news reports at the time, Canadians were far more interested in financial security than in vacationing. The guides all came from the surrounding area, and many became experts at knowing the right fishing spots on certain lakes. Some would trap all winter and guide for the hotels all summer. It took a while for some to get used to their wild appearance. But once you got to know them, many were most interesting conversationalists. They didn't make much money, but they all sure knew how to look after their guests in the bush. As Mary Colson Clare, the niece of Molly Colson, once said, it was most incongruous to see women with washed skins and clean dresses chatting with these old-faced guides scratching their heads who likely hadn't seen a bath in weeks. The hotels were open from early May until the end of September with a few guides staying on well into October for fall fishing trips. The earliest known canoe trip was the Hayes Party pictured here in 1895. Another was the well-documented in photographs and drawings Ernest Machado's in the fall of 1903. For those interested in the details of the Machado trip, check out my book, Canoe Tripping in Algonquin, Then and Now. Guides had to be approved and licensed by the park superintendent upon the recommendation of an inspector or game warden at an annual cost of $2 a year. The 1909 regulations of licenses for fishing guides made them responsible for extinguishing any fires that may have been kindled by the party employing them as guide and the advising the department of any violations of fish and game laws within one month after such offense, giving the name and address of the offender and other particulars that would lead to the conviction of the party or parties committing the offense. Guides who neglected or refused to comply with these regulations were subject to penalties including the cancelling of their license and an inability to be re-employed as a guide for two years. Note that in 20 years of extensive archival research, not once did I ever find mention of a single guide ever reporting a client for fish or game law violations. The hotels would provide all canoes rented out at a dollar a day, tents, gear, and food, and the guides usually needed to be booked some weeks in advance. They paid for their own meals at 25 cents a meal, and if not under contract, otherwise the tourist party involved paid for all of the guides' meals. Until 1920, excluding tips, they earned about $2 a day and an extra 50 cents if they used their own canoe. After 1920, the rate increased to $4 a day and an extra dollar if a guide used his own canoe. In the 1930s, the Highland Inn was quoted at $55 a week, including a guide, all equipment, and gear. Each hotel had a special guide shack where the guides that they hired stayed for free when not on trip. Some guides would come up in early spring and help with the opening up of the hotels and would do many of the spring cleaning jobs that needed to be done. Even Tom Thompson during his Algonquin years from 1915 to 1917 was known to help out at Mowat Lodge. 
He also allegedly helped to clear the trees and brush from Little Wapameo Island, which had been leased by Taylor Staten in 1912, who went on a few years later to start Camomic, that now inhabits the northeast bay of Canoe Lake. He also allegedly helped haul sand from Sims Pits, which was used for the beautiful stone fireplace that was designed by George Chubb. A prophetic inscription, which is still there today, was carved onto the wooden mantelpiece that reads, Here let the Northwood's spirit kindle fires of friendship. the size that it was during the Gilmore Lumber Company heyday from 1896 to 1900, Canoe Lake was then and still is now a close-knit community. By 1918, in addition to the hotels and railway personnel, there were about a dozen or so leaseholds on the lake. Most had an affiliation with either lumbering or the railway, though in later years the group expanded to include teachers, ministers, and many small business owners. The two most famous residents besides the Frasers of Mowat Lodge, the Colsons of Algonquin Hotel, and park ranger Mark Robinson were the Bletcher and Trainer families. This is because of their close affiliation with Tom Thompson and his subsequent mysterious death on Canoe Lake in July 1917. The Bletchers, who lived just north of Mowat Lodge, joined the Canoe Lake summer community from Buffalo in 1909. Of German descent, Martin Bletcher Sr. and his wife Louisa had two children, Martin Jr. and Bessie. Though Martin Sr. was well-liked, Martin Jr. not so much. According to one neighbor, sometimes the Bletchers would be very friendly, and then a little later they wouldn't want anything to do with you. They would even push you off their property. One year, Louisa posted a huge no trespassing sign with an accompanying notice that the $100 would be paid for information leading to the arrest of anyone damaging your property, and accused locals of stealing tools. This concern, I think, was because the area just south of them had been turned by then into a launching site for canoeists renting canoes from Moat Lodge. Once, she chased after Mark Robinson, the local park ranger, with her broom because he reminded her that she needed to fly the American flag below, not above, the Union Jack on her flagpole. Some locals were convinced that the Bletchers sat there with binoculars watching the lake and all that passed by. There is, of course, no proof of this, and my research suggests that the Peeping Tom was likely a photographer neighbor across the lake who loved to take pictures from his dock using his telephoto lens. There were also unfounded suspicions that began to circulate more broadly after Thompson's death that Martin Jr. had been more closely involved with his disappearance than was apparent at the time. Not only was there an alleged altercation the night before Thompson disappeared, but he and his school teacher sister Bessie had apparently seen Thompson's empty canoe the day after he disappeared and hadn't reported it till much later. In hindsight, it's hard to tell if these concerns were real or just more gossip associated with their being of German descent during World War I, which was still raging in Europe at the time. Martin Jr. seemed to enjoy putting around the lake, though according to some, not always with enough due regard for those in canoes. His boat, Putt-Putt, would be heard going past Moat every morning at dawn to Canoe Lake Station to meet the train. Louisa gained her own level of notoriety as a result of a mistake in judgment that began just after Martin Sr.'s death. For whatever reasons, she applied for and was given permission to build a fence around her property. Her apparent objective was to keep Moat Lodge tourists from wandering onto her lease and bothering her. Later, the fence was extended to include several neighboring parcels as well, 
but the real uproar didn't begin until 1925. That year, Louisa built a boathouse down by the shore and extended her fence to include a two-acre parcel, which included all lands lying to the south of this part of the lake where it abuts the old mill yard. It prevented anyone from landing on the shore and walking up to the access road that ran behind all of the buildings on that side of the lake. This was considered a great inconvenience to a large number of tourists and leaseholds who frequented the lake. A group of them signed a petition and sent it to the department. There's no mention in the department lease archives of exactly how the matter got finally resolved, but it did add to the reputation of the Bletchers as being difficult, and they became quite estranged from the community. In the early spring of 1938, Martin Bletcher died of a sudden heart attack, and his American second wife, Carolyn, was left stranded in Canada. At about this same time, he'd considered taking out his own lease on Smoke Lake, but died before final arrangements could be made. One resident recalls coming up that spring and finding a hearse at the Canoe Lake Landing. Looking up the lake, he saw a couple of men with lanterns pulling a sled that he found out later bore the body of Martin Bletcher, Jr. That eerie image stuck with him for decades. Even myself, I can recall being told as a child to give the Bletcher place a wide berth when boating or canoeing at that end of the lake, some ten years or more after the lease had been transferred to new owners in the early 1950s. The trainers who lived north of Mowat Lodge had taken out their lease in 1912. The patriarch, Hugh Trainer, was the logging foreman for the Huntsville Lumber Company. They had been using some of the old Gilmore buildings since 1909 when they were logging west of Canoe Lake. Though the family was based in Huntsville, they would use the Canoe Lake lease as a summer vacation spot. The trainers had two daughters, Winifred, who worked as a bookkeeper in Huntsville, and Marie, a nurse who eventually married Dr. Roy McCormick, son of well-known park ranger Tom McCormick. Over the years, there was and still is lots of talk and whispered tales that Winifred was Thompson's love interest. Another claimed that he'd left her some hand-painted teacups and several of his paintings and drawings. None of these tales were ever confirmed or denied by her, and her remaining family on Canoe Lake won't reveal her secrets if she had any. The only reference I was ever able to find about Thompson was in a note written to the park superintendent in 1954. Of apparent concern to her was an article about Thompson that had appeared that spring in McLean's magazine that she believed to be factually incorrect. She was apparently anxious to right the many wrongs that had been written in it about Tom, commenting that it had been 37 years to the day since Tom had lost his life on Canoe Lake. Soon after Thompson's death, she left Canoe Lake and went to spend the rest of the summer with a friend in the United States. Unfounded rumors had it that she had found herself with child and had fled to the United States and there gave up the child for adoption. What is known is that she never married and seemed over the years to become more embittered and always dressed in black. It's impossible to talk about the community at Canoe Lake in 1918 without talking about Tom Thompson, who had mysteriously died apparently due to accidental drowning in the summer of 1917. Dozens of books and likely hundreds of articles have been written about him, both his art, his influences that he had on the Canadian art scene, and of course the odd set of circumstances around his death. Suffice it to say that most of us Canoe Lake residents are still convinced that he is buried up at Canoe Lake Cemetery and has never been moved to Owen Sound as his family insists. My brother claims to have found the murder weapon, a paddle with a notch cut out of the blade deep in the south bay of Canoe Lake in 1977. It now resides on our cabin wall. His legend will likely never die, and the retelling of the story is an annual summer feature of the social scene both at Canoe Lake and across the country. Music
luckily for Algonquin Park and for Canoe Lake was the fact that Molly Colson had originally been trained as a nurse in Ottawa. She was a wonderful healer and over the years became the local midwife, prenatal counselor, setter of broken bones, and even pulled teeth upon occasion. She would always come when anyone was sick, even in the winter, as the closest doctors were either in Huntsville, Barry's Bay, and sometimes in Whitney, some distance away. The only hospital was a Red Cross hospital in Whitney, and it was only accessible by a department-owned gas-driven handcar that resided at Canoe Lake Station. Molly gained fame locally when a man at the local lumbering camp had fractured his leg and needed a splint before he could be moved. Ed made the splint out of a piece of board, and Molly set the bone and bound the splint. He was eventually taken to the hospital at Whitney, who said later that the doctor hadn't needed to touch it at all. It had been set perfectly. In another incident, the pregnant wife of one of the railroad section men had come into labor early. The doctor was in bed with the flu and Molly was the only alternative. In the midst of a terrible wind and lightning storm, she headed out on a three-wheeled speeder with the woman's husband on the 10-mile journey to Rock Lake. Unfortunately, the baby had died and the woman was in terrible shape. Molly stayed there for four days, nursing her back to health. And still another incident was years later when she walked more than a mile to the Farley house using two canes and delivered one of the Farley's daughters who'd arrived prematurely. According to some in the district at the time, Molly did everything for her neighbors but marry them and bury them, and her husband could do those two things if needed. According to the medical records at the Archives of Ontario website, the illness of greatest concern in the 19th century was tuberculosis, also called consumption. At the time, it was a leading cause of death in the industrialized world. Conventional wisdom was that living amongst the trees would be good for the lungs, perhaps as a result of more rest, a nourishing diet, and fresh air. Canada's first tuberculosis hospital was at the Muskoka Cottage Sanatorium, which opened in 1897 in Gravenhurst, a location chosen for its clear air. In 1902, the Muskoka Free Hospital for Consumptives was built on the same site. This was the first free tuberculosis hospital in the world. Its focus was on people in the early stages of lung disease, which involved spending 10 to 12 hours of each day in the open air, regardless of the weather. It was also common for certain types of family hotels to cater to tuberculosis patients. Mowat Lodge was one such hotel, and Robbie Crombie was one such patient. The Crombies stayed at Mowat Lodge during the winter of 1916 and the spring of 1918, and his wife Daphne became close friends with Annie Fraser. The two of them are painted together walking in the woods in early spring by Tom Thompson. Daphne became an integral part of the Tom Thompson legend when in her 90s she shared with Canadian journalist Roy McGregor that Annie Fraser had told her of an altercation between Tom Thompson and Shannon Fraser the night before he died, when Thompson allegedly asked for money that was owed to him by Fraser. Another disease prevalent at that time was diphtheria. This was, according to the Museum of Healthcare at Kingston, because of the close quarters amongst workers during the Industrial Revolution, especially amongst the poor. It was also a particular threat to children. At Canoe Lake, leaseholder Thomas Hayhurst's eight-year-old son Alexander caught the disease in 1915. According to Mark Robinson, Mark Robinson had quickly gone to see a Dr. Mason in Kearney to see if he could get some of the antitoxin for the disease that had become available in 1914. Unfortunately, the antitoxin didn't work, and the boy died and was buried at the Canoe Lake Cemetery. Unfortunately, effective treatment wasn't commonplace until the 1920s. 
According to an article in the Ontario Government Archives, the Spanish flu came to Canada in the fall of 1918 as part of what was now called the Second Wave. Though originally thought to be carried home by returning World War I soldiers, later research indicated that it landed in Canada at army camps via a contingent of Polish troops who were being trained at Niagara-on-the-Lake in Ontario. They had come from an American military facility in Haskell, Kansas. The Polish troops were being trained by the Canadian military to form a Polish National Army. The disease spread westward via the recently completed Transcontinental Railway, devastating First Nation communities along the way, especially at the residential schools. Though downplayed in late September, by mid-October, just two weeks later, over 500 mostly young people had died in the city of Toronto alone. Like today, municipal governments shut down all non-essential services and most public gatherings, including schools, dance halls, and theaters. Schools and church basements became makeshift kitchens to prepare food for those ill at home, and women were aggressively recruited to help care for patients at overextended hospital facilities. The other challenge was the social and economic impact due not just the resulting death tolls, but the already depleted workforce due to the war. Thousands of families lost their primary wage earner and thousands of children were orphaned. One good result, though, was the creation of the Federal Department of Health in 1919 and a desire to create a more coordinated health system in Canada. Gradually, old policies of preventing epidemics by strict quarantines and medical policing of Canadian borders were quickly replaced by programs intended to address underlying social problems and to change behavior seen as encouraging the spread of disease. This shift from disease management to disease prevention laid a foundation for the universal health care system Canada would enact in the decades to come. Net-net, the fluid epidemic seems to have missed Algonquin Park, and though it continued to be a problem in Canada until well into the 1920, by the spring of 1919 the crisis had passed. There are no recorded instances of illness or death amongst the Canoe Lake community. However, having said that, one of the curious things that did happen in Ontario at that time was an almost collective public agnesia about the trauma that had happened. So the likely the truth is that we will never know what impact, if any, the Spanish flu had at Canoe Lake in 1918. So I hope you've enjoyed this pictorial podcast peek into the human history of Algonquin Park. If you'd like to learn more, do check out my website, algonquinparkheritage.com, or feel free to drop me a note via clemsong at algonquinparkheritage.com. All of my books can be found also at the Algonquin Park Visitor Center or on Amazon.ca. And do check back for additional stories.